brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hi, I'm Shashank Bhargav, and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express news show. In this episode, we talk about political violence taking place between the TMC and the BJP in West Bengal. We also talk about new guidelines regarding treating and managing type 1 diabetes. But first, we talk about the defense services. On Tuesday, the government announced a new scheme for recruiting soldiers across the three defense services, that is the Army, Navy and Air Force. This new scheme is called Agnipath. And the soldiers recruited through the scheme will be called Agnibirs. Here is Defence Minister Rajnath Singh unveiling the scheme during a press briefing. Now, apart from changing how soldiers will be recruited, the scheme is also expected to reduce the amount of money the government spends on defence pensions and salaries. In this segment, we speak to Krishan Kaushik, who reports on defence for the newspaper about how the scheme will do that. Krishan, before we talk about the Agnipat scheme, could you talk about how soldiers have traditionally been recruited in the defense services? Sure. So for many, many decades, how soldiers, and when I mean soldiers, I'm talking about what officially is called personnel below officer ranks. It's basically the personnel who do not join as commissioned officers, but below those ranks. So how they are recruited is first, they have these recruitment rallies all around the country. Then there's a selection process and so on. That's how they are inducted into the three services. Once they are inducted, then they're usually there for a minimum of 17 years. That tenure can get extended for certain personnel. And after that tenure, then they start receiving a pension. But ideally, they become eligible to receive a pension once they have completed a 17-year service. Many of them leave the services immediately after that. Many continue to remain in the service, go slightly up in the ranks and continue in their respective services for a little longer. That's how traditionally it has been done. Okay, so this is the traditional way. How will the Agnipat scheme change this recruitment process? So the Agnipat scheme is a massive, massive, you know, some people are calling it reform, some are calling it a slightly regressive change, but it totally upends how the recruitment has been done till now. While the recruitment standards will remain the same and the recruitment process remains the same, what has changed is the duration of the terms of engagement or the contract for which they will be hired. So from now on, all soldiers, again, personnel below the ranks of officers who join the three services, which is the Army, the Navy and the Air Force, will join only for four years. This four years will also include a maximum of six months of training. The training can range from 10 weeks to six months. It depends upon the service that you are joining or the role that you have been given in a particular service. After the six-month period, then you are deployed, whether in the operational areas or in the headquarters. So then you have a three and a half years of deployment. 
So for a total of four years, a soldier will be part of the Indian military. What happens at the end of four years is all the soldiers essentially leave the military, but 25% of them will be recruited back for a permanent service. This permanent service will be for 15 years. However, the first four years of service that they did as under this program called Agnipath and the soldiers will themselves be called Agnivirs. So this four-year period as Agnivir will not be counted in the total tenure that they will have in the military, even if they are re-employed at the end of these four years. So at the end of that 15-year service, the pension benefits will only be calculated for that particular period, the 15-year period. These four years are taken away from that record. So this is how the new process is. Now, the government has tried to project it as a way to make the army and the navy and the air force, basically the entire military or the entire armed forces much younger. They are claiming that, you know, this will give a much younger profile to the military. According to their own data, the average age of a soldier in the country at the moment is about 32 years age. In the next seven years, that will come down to about 26 years. So the government, the way it's projecting it, it's saying this will bring in a much younger force and it will make them more tech savvy. Yes. So it will create a future ready force which is in the long run much leaner because you have to understand that 75% of these people will be laid off or basically will move out of the military eventually. So that's how the government has projected it. Right. But one of the main things that is being talked about in regards to this scheme is that it will help the government spend considerably less on defense pensions. Could you talk about how the scheme will do that? Sure. So, I mean, let me give you a bit about the finances of how things have been working today and how things might change from now on. You know, when we asked this question to the panel of the defense minister, that's uh, Rajnath Singh and the three service chiefs, they did not really respond to this because this has been one of the basic ideas behind bringing this new scheme, Agnipath, that, you know, defense budget, if not needs to come down, it needs to focus more on spending for modernization of the forces rather than just the salaries and the pensions. So what will happen under the new scheme, the soldiers will start getting a salary starting 30,000 onwards every month. This salary will go on to 40,000 by the end of the four-year period. But throughout this period, 30% of the salary will be set aside under a Seva Nidhi program. And the government will also contribute the same amount of money every month to this Seva Nidhi for every soldier. So by the end of four years, when the soldier is leaving the military or leaving the respective service, he will get about 11.7 lakh, which will be an income tax-free lump sum amount. So the government claims that it has tried to make this entire thing financially attractive for the young people because these are people who will be joining the services between the ages of 17 and a half to 21. So by the time they leave the service at max, they would be 21 and a half to 25. So to have this amount of lump sum and also get a, what can be assumed a decent pay package during the service, which they start earning immediately as soon as they join. So even during the training period, the government has tried to say that this is a financially attractive way that youth will be happy with this. Okay, and talking about defense pensions and even the defense budget overall, we know that both these things have been going up over time. Could you give a sense of how much the government spends on pensions? So pension has been a major cause of concern for many governments over the years. Honestly, pension has been one of the largest expenditures as part of the defense budget itself. Just to give you an idea, the defense budget allocated this year is 5.25 lakh crore rupees. Out of that, just pensions are about 1.2 lakh crore rupees. If you add the salaries that are also given put together, that is about 2.55 lakh crore rupees. So just pensions and salaries this year will be more than 2.5 lakh crore rupees. And a fund available for modernization is much lower, you know, depending upon if it's just for the services or for the entire defense budget, the capital outlay. If you, so, I mean, the modernization fund is about 1.5 lakh crore rupees or like for the entire capital outlay within the, within the defense budget is about 2 point something lakh crore rupees. 
So you can understand how big pension and the salaries have been as a part of the defense budget. To give you an, a better understanding, just the pension budget for this year is more than what the government has allocated for health entirely, what the government has allocated even for education, what the government has even allocated for Manrega, you know, the employment guarantee scheme. So that is the amount that the government is paying. And this has been a cost that the government has been thinking about reducing for a while. Two years back, one of the parliamentary committee reports in 2020 had actually even mentioned that the burgeoning pension budget is a cause of concern. So the governments have been thinking of various methods to bring this budget down, but they have not been able to come up with a successful model, at least till now. Will this become a successful model? It remains to be seen. However, government is again not claiming that the idea behind bringing the scheme is to cut the defense budget, at least for the pensions and salaries. Because when we asked, the defense minister actually said that, you know, there's never any paucity of funds for the military to defend the borders. But clearly that's not the case. We know for a fact that two years ago, when the initial proposal for the scheme had come about, one of the documents that we had seen, it mentioned that just for a sepoy, again, you know, like a, a initial sepoy rank officer sepoy rank personnel if the sepoy serve for a three-year period as that was an initial idea compared to the 17 years that a sepoy serves in let's say just in the army the average cost per sepoy that will be saved will be about rupees 11.5 crore rupees so this was the initial very basic rough calculation done by the army of course the idea behind the scheme has always at least if not started with it has always included this aspect of saving costs but the government is not saying that this time and Krishan, one of the things that the government wants to do is to modernize defense equipment and there is a need to do that. So talk about that aspect a bit and the extent to which that needs to be done. Well, of course, I mean, you know, the modernization of defense services is always a key priority for almost all governments that have a modern military. So the government has to spend, I mean, the Air Force right now needs a lot more fighter jets. The Air Force has much fewer or let's say very few quadrants at about 29 to 30 squadrons at the moment, while this action strength is 42. The Navy has been asking for a third, second indigenous aircraft carrier. All these cost tens of thousands of crores of rupees. And because so much of the money is allocated for uh, salaries and pensions, I mean, we have a 13 lakh strong military. There is a need to cut the size of the military as well, maybe rationalize the size, make it a much leaner force which will cut these figures. But is the temporary service the best option or do you need to prune the total numbers altogether? That's for the government to decide. And that's a call that the government has to take along with the services. But yes, I mean, India easily needs about 1.5 lakh crore rupees annually just for the modernization of its forces to get more tanks, to get more aircraft carriers, to get more fighter jets, to get more artillery guns. That is required. And because the, so much of the money is diverted towards pension and salaries, that has been affected over the years. And next, we talk about West Bengal. In yesterday's episode, we talked about how controversial statements made by BJP spokesperson Nupur Sharma led to violent protests in various parts of Uttar Pradesh, and which were later followed by a series of demolition drives by the state administration. But after those controversial statements, violent protests had also taken place in West Bengal. In rural parts of Howrah district, for example, internet services were temporarily suspended after protesters clashed with the police and set vehicles on fire. The controversy has also once again led to tensions between the ruling Trinamool Congress and the BJP. In this segment, we speak to Sweety Kumari, who reports on Bengal politics for the Indian Express. Sweetie, could you talk about the kind of tensions and protests we have seen in West Bengal following the controversial statements of Nupur Sharma 
who was the BJP's national spokesperson. Yeah, Sharma's commitment during a TV debate, we all know that actually sparked quite a protest across the country. And uh, in Bengal also, uh, there were demonstrations. Initially, it was uh, very non-violent in the nature. And uh, we were told by police that there were few peaceful rallies being organized across the state. But over a period of time, we saw that the same protest took a violent turn and uh, the state witnessed violence in different pockets. which started from Ankur Hati in Howrah district where this national highway was uh, blocked for about 16 hours and slowly the tension spread through Bakra, Pachla and other areas of Howrah rural and later on the next day similar situation was seen and witnessed in Murshidabad, Beldanga where the internet services had to be suspended. Police and administration initially tried to underplay it but the situation really got worse in few pockets of Howrah where police vehicles were torched. As per reports, a few local clubs and BJP party offices locally were also vandalized. There were clashes between police and mobs too. Protesters also indulged into stone pelting, blocking national highways. In fact, train tracks were also blocked. Though there were no serious injuries, but uh, yes, the violence continued for more than few days. Right, and we know that this has also led to tensions between the ruling TMC and the BJP in the state. So tell us, what have we seen in that regard? Yeah, the tension between BJP and TMC has been there in Bengal for quite a while now. As part of the latest protest, BJP party offices were burnt uh, and vandalized specifically in Howrah. So BJP leaders have tried to visit the affected areas but haven't been allowed. In fact, State President Sukanto Majumdar and his supporters were arrested on Saturday while they were heading to Howrah district. where several saffron party offices were vandalized and the police gave this logic that the district was under prohibitory orders and gathering of five or more people were not allowed high drama was also witnessed at tamluk in purva mednipur district on sunday afternoon as west bengal leader of opposition shubhendu adhikari was uh, prevented by police from visiting violent sit areas uh, in bengal So, uh, Trinamool Congress, you know, also, you know, there have been several cases filed against Nupur Sharma in Kolkata. And interestingly, uh, most of the complainants are from Trinamool Congress Party itself. Trinamool Congress Minority Cell General Secretary Abu Sohel had recently lodged a complaint following which an FIR was filed against Sharma at Kontai Police Station over her remarks. And later, Sharma was also summoned by Kolkata Police based on one such complaint in Narkildanga. West Bengal BJP President Shukantu Mamajumdar also held a sit-in protest before the statue of Mahatma Gandhi here in Kolkata against the alleged failure of the West Bengal government to contain violence in Howrah district. And obviously during this time there are a number of allegations that the BJP is making against the TMC and TMC has also been saying things in response. So give us a sense as to the kind of things that are being said. Yeah, yeah. You know, basically, BJP leaders are alleging that the police had not taken prompt action to prevent the violence from uh, spreading in Pachla, Uluberia, Dhulagar in Howrah district. And they have been uh, saying since the day one that if the police and administration were strict enough, then it would have been stopped on the day one. 
And, you know, we have seen that the tension kept spreading from one district to another, clearly showing that police uh, wasn't either prepared for it or, uh, you know, there was not set mechanism to tackle the situation. The BJP has accused TMC of uh, using police to appease minority community, while TMC has maintained their stand on the issue that they are morally in support of the views against Nupur Sharma comment. But uh, they do not promote vandalism or any kind of violence uh, in the state. If we go through the recent uh, TMC spokesperson Kunal Ghosh uh, comment, where he said that BJP actually has no moral right to talk on the issue on Nupur Sharma and Naveen Jindal because their comment had triggered outrage and hurt the sentiment of people across the country and it has lowered the image of the country abroad. Precisely, I would say the blame game is on. BJP is uh, accusing TMC of not taking enough stand and uh, they have failed in containing the situation. TMC, on the other hand, are saying that it is BJP whose uh, leaders are making such irresponsible comments and uh, such situations are arising out of it. Also, sweetie, in the middle of all this, we also saw the BJP state president, Sukanta Majumdar, make calls to bring the central forces into the state to control the situation. And this is something that the TMC has tried to resist in the past as well, right? Yeah, you know, it is not the first time definitely that BJP has demanded for central forces for containing any situation in Bengal. Well, you rightly said that TMC has always tried to resist even in the past on the ground that law and order of Bengal is a state subject. And police, they have always shown trust in state police and they say that state police, according to TMC, are competent to handle any kind of situation. TMC, however, maintains that its government has effectively tackled this recent violence as well. The BJP is trying to spread violence in the state that TMC is accusing. They are also trying to disturb the atmosphere of Bengal and the country through the politics of hatred that TMC has been accusing from day one. On the other hand, BJP has said that the state police only works at the behest of ruling Trinamool Congress and they work on in favor of one particular community. So they have always demanded a central force, in fact, even during any kind of election in the state. I would also like to mention that there have been several public PILs filed in the Calcutta High Court. So the Calcutta High Court on Monday sought the state government's response in a batch of PILs, as I mentioned, seeking deployment of central forces. Court bench uh, comprising Chief Justice Prakash Srivastava and Justice Rajeshri Bharadwaj observed that the state government should assure no untoward incident take place and if required, they should seek help from central forces. And uh, the court also directed West Bengal government to file a state report on the situation by June 15. And you know, you earlier mentioned that the BJP and the TMC have a history of engaging in such violence in the state. So could you talk about the kind of incidents we have seen between the two parties in the past? Yeah, you know, violence in Bengal uh, between BJP and TMC or because of BJP and TMC has been a talk of the town since last few years. Trinamool Congress landslide victory in the recent West Bengal Assembly election was also followed by political violence across the state. While the BJP accused TMC of killing their cadres, murdering them, the TMC have always put the blame on intra-BJP faction fighting. So I would say the situation is like if TMC workers dying, then BJP would say that it is because of their internal fighting and uh, TMC will put the blame on BJP. 
and it is vice versa. Eventually, both have claimed casualties among their ranks in recent past since last Lok Sabha election, I would say, even before that. It is a power struggle between the Trinamool Congress and the BJP in West Bengal. I would like to sum up this entire thing. Like Every time there is an election, the state witnesses murder, arson, violence of all sorts. Having said that, violence have always been an integral part of the state. And now so we all know that Calcutta High Court has directed CBI to probe a lot of political uh, violence, post-poll violence cases. And uh, we have seen that arrests have been made by CBI from both the parties. And also, you know, basically the violence is taking place between the grass loot party workers of both the parties, while the big names and leaders have been continuing changing their loyalties from one party to another. And in the end, we talk about diabetes. India is often referred to as the diabetes capital of the world. But when people talk about diabetes, they usually mean a specific kind of diabetes, which is type 2. This is the most popular kind. But there is another kind of diabetes which is not talked about as much. And this is type 1 diabetes, also called childhood diabetes. And even though it is less talked about, it can be fatal without proper insulin therapy. Recently, the Indian Council of Medical Research or ICMR released guidelines for the diagnosis, treatment and management of this type of diabetes. In this segment, my colleague Utsha Sermon spoke to Indian Express's Anona Dutt about these guidelines and type 1 diabetes. So Anona, the ICMR recently released guidelines on type 1 diabetes. Could you tell us exactly what type 1 diabetes is? Sure. Uh, now, what we talk about our parents having uh, diabetes is the more common type of diabetes called type 2 diabetes, which accounts for probably 90% of all diabetes cases that we have in this country. Type 2 diabetes is in a smaller number of patients and it's referred to as juvenile diabetes or childhood diabetes because it usually gets diagnosed early on in life. One year and above, usually in the teens, people get diagnosed. So the thing with type 1 diabetes is that in the children stop producing insulin altogether. Insulin is basically a hormone which helps regulate the blood sugar. And when there is excess sugar, it tells the cells of the liver and other fat cells to store these glucose. But when the insulin is not there, this whole metabolism cannot be regulated. And in this children, this insulin is completely absent. In the more regular type of diabetes, the type 2 diabetes, insulin is produced by the people. Sometimes the quantity is less, which is why we substitute it with some uh, medicines. And sometimes people also need to take the insulin shots. But your body does produce some amount of insulin. And in a, a lot of cases, what happens, the cells become resistant to the insulin. In type 2 diabetes, this is the most common form of diabetes. But in type 1, your body stops producing insulin altogether. So people who are diagnosed with this, they have to be on insulin throughout their life. And if they do not take insulin, they will die within weeks or months. Okay. And the other thing to note is that type 1 diabetes is rare, right? As in it's definitely rarer than type 2. 
So, uh, yes, type 2 diabetes is the most common form, which is like 90% of all diabetes cases. Then the rest, 10% of the cases are various other types of uncommon diabetes. And amongst them, type 1 is the most common. It's the most common among the uncommon ones. But the numbers may be less, but it is children who are affected and it is children who are affected throughout their life. So they have to keep taking the medicine throughout their life. So as far as we know, it's an estimate based on like hospitals and clinics who do see these cases. It is estimated that there are about uh, 2.5 lakh people in India in total who live with this condition. And of these 2.5 lakh people, 1 lakh people are under the age of 14 years. So that's sort of the burden of the disease right now. I wouldn't say it's rare, but it is not as common as type 2, which we see in our everyday life. And can you tell us what exactly causes type 1 diabetes? Now, what we know so far about type 1 diabetes is that it seems to be the body's immune system attacking the cells that produce insulin, which is why the insulin production stops completely. So that is a genetic component to it, which means that, you know, if your uh, mother has the condition, then you're at 3% risk. If your father has it, you're at 5% risk. And if your sibling has it, you're at an 8% risk. Other than that, there are also certain genes which are more commonly linked with people who have type 1 diabetes. But we don't fully understand it right now. But yes, certain genetic markers, if you have it, you're much more likely to have type 1 diabetes. Okay, and we are talking about it right now because of the recent ICMR guidelines. So what are these guidelines and what do they mention? Right, uh, so we have had guidelines for type 2 diabetes. For a few years now, there have been like a couple of revisions as well, but we didn't have a national guideline for type 1 diabetes. We had like hospitals which do see a lot of diabetes case. They have their own say, guidelines or there are international guidelines, but a national guideline, we did not have it so far. So these guidelines talk about not only the incidence, like how many people have it or who is at risk, but it also talks about how can you distinguish type 1 diabetes from type 2 diabetes, which is also now happening in younger adults. So, you know, people who are 25 year olds or less are also getting type 2 diabetes, which is usually associated with age, obesity, unhealthy lifestyle. But now in India, younger and younger people are getting it. So the guidelines talk about how do you distinguish the types of diabetes and then there are uncommon types of diabetes, which also they have mentioned how would you distinguish these. Then there are clinical treatment, like what sort of treatment you have to give. Then there are guidelines for the people, what sort of exercise should they undertake, what kind of food they can take. If they are going to travel, what are the precautions they have to take? How do they carry their insulin? What happens in pregnant women? So it's a very detailed 173-page document document which gives details on all different kinds of problems that people with type 1 diabetes may face and what they need to do. And even things like, you know, if you have a kidney disease because of the diabetes or nerve damage because of it, how to manage that. So it's a very comprehensive guideline. It is meant for physicians. I mean, even, you know, at a primary care level, they know about the condition and they are able to diagnose it quicker. And Anona, do we know why the ICMR chose to issue these guidelines now? So, I mean, there has been a push from diabetologists, I think, to include this because it is very important disease in the 
children because the other diabetes we see usually in older population but this is like really young children who have to get pricks every day to deliver the insulin and we still don't know how many people we miss out like who don't get the required treatment this 2.5 lakh that i say that's an estimate we don't have the absolute numbers so there has been a push to sort of come out with these guidelines for a while but i mean there's no specific instance prompting the you know icmr to come out with this it has been in the works i think the team was constituted in 2019 to start working on it and this becomes more important with the pandemic because if we have seen the data from the pandemic disproportionately people with diabetes have had severe disease people with diabetes have died more of those without so it becomes important You were listening to Three Things by the Indian Express. Today's show was written and produced by me, Shashank Bhargav, with help from Utsha Sherman, and was edited and mixed by Suresh Pawar. If you like the show, then do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also recommend the show to someone you think will like it. Share it with a friend or someone in your family. It's the best way for people to get to know about us. You can also tweet us at Express Audio and write to us at podcast at IndianExpress dot com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.